you'll please open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah, a minor prophet, one of those little books in the back of the Old Testament there. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break apart. Then the mariners were afraid, and they each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again and ask him for his help. Our gracious Father, Lord, we know this morning that we are weak, that we are um, lowly, that we need help. Uh, We need help in in everything. We need help especially as we come to your word. We need help. uh, We need your help to rightly understand it, to rightly read it, to rightly apply it to our hearts and lives. And we ask this morning, O Lord, that your spirit would be with us, that you would do those things for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love being a parent, okay? I think I can, I think I can safely say that here. Uh, I love being a daddy. I uh, love having two little youngins to run around with, to chase around. But the one thing, I think one of the things about parenting that I'm not crazy about would be the, the, the first thing would probably be the diapers, okay? We're still in the diaper phase. But other than that, um, you know, some of the kids' television and movie choices are just torture to watch, okay? Or just even to, not even to watch, just to be in the same room, okay? Um, You know, shows like Caillou, all right? If you don't know who Caillou is, then thank the Lord that you don't know what Caillou is. Caillou is the worst kids show of all time. It is is the only show banned in our house. It's just so irritating. 
Um, you know, we watch a lot of My Little Pony at, at our house. Not crazy about that one either. Um, Frozen, after about the 50th time, it gets a little, it, it gets a little old, okay? Um, and so it's a rough life. I know, it's a rough life we parents lead. It's 21st century problems here. Um, but thankfully, for, children of young, for parents of young children, there is a movie company called Pixar, okay? And this is good news for us. Uh, it, you know, it might be easy to look at a Pixar movie and to think this is going to be just like all these other annoying kids' movies. It's going to be irritating and insufferable to sit through. Um, but that just, you know, if you really pay attention to Pixar's output, uh, they make some really good stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's movies that can be enjoyed by adults as well as children. And that's something really special. Take, for instance, um, one of my favorites is 2009's movie Up. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, if you remember Up, familiar with that. There's a sequence at the beginning of the movie Up, okay, where it's a, it's a, a sequence with no dialogue. It's like a five-minute sequence about marriage, all right? And it may be like the best thing on marriage, the best picture of marriage I've ever seen in a movie of any kind. And in this sort of wordless scene, there's this couple, and it shows them, you know, as they're meeting, as they get married, and it shows them going through the highs and the lows of life. It shows them enjoying, you know, the sweet times of marriage together. It shows them struggling with um, some low points, like their inability to have children. And it shows them aging and growing old together and spending their lives together. And eventually, it shows them being separated by death. It's, it's kind of a heavy sequence for a kid's movie, I know, but it's, but it's, it's just it's so moving. And I'm not ashamed to say I cry every single time I see it. Um, it I, if you haven't seen Up, I would encourage you to check it out. It's, it's really good. But, you know, so there's this movie, that, which has this, something that's so, it's really enjoyable. It's really something that's for the adults as well. You know, other Pixar movies, you know, that are, are not just, that can engage adults and parents, you know, just as well as children, like WALL-E and, and The Incredibles and Toy Story 3. Oh, that's a great one. Toy Story 3. you got to check that one out, too. Uh, now, you know, these are not just good kids' movies. These are, like, good movies, period. And my point is this, that it might be easy for us to kind of write off Pixar movies as saying, this is just a bunch of kid stuff, right? That's not, that's not for me. I, I'm, a, I'm an adult, okay? That's, that's just kid stuff. But if you do that, I, I think you, um, you miss out on something. You miss out on, on these movies that are actually really good and really worth your time and have some good redeeming value to them, I think. Now, I'm afraid that we do the very same thing to the book of Jonah, that we come to the book of Jonah and we say, ah, that's just kid stuff, right? Um, the book of Jonah is a story that we hear a lot in Sunday school. It's, it's a story that's emphasized a lot uh, in children's Bibles and things like that. And it's easy for us to sometimes kind of leave it in the Sunday school classroom and not think that it has much to say for us, for, for mature Christians, for adults. But again, if we take that view, we miss out on what is a surprisingly deep and profound book. There is a lot in these four chapters in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah belongs to a group of books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And they're called minor not because they're less, less important, but just because they're smaller books. They're shorter books. But unlike the other Minor Prophets, the book of Jonah does not focus on Jonah's prophetic message, on the stuff that he says. The focus of Jonah is on, his, on how he behaves, the things that he does in this, in this particular event, in this, this particular account here. Uh, it's mostly a narrative, unlike the other minor prophets. And so the book opens, as we just read, as we just saw, the book opens with God coming to Jonah and saying, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the city Nineveh and call out against them because they're a wicked city. And this sounds like a lot of the, this is the way a lot of the minor prophets start out, okay? But th- things very quickly go differently in the book of Jonah because it says, Jonah arose and he fled. To, he fled. He went away. He went the opposite direction 
of Nineveh. And that's sort of our first clue that, okay, this is going to be different. This is not going to be like the other minor prophets that we're familiar with. Um, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was a major city in Assyria. And Assyria was like the big-time enemy of Israel. In fact, in just a generation or two after the events of this book, Assyria would actually conquer the northern kingdom, conquer Israel, and take them over. So they're not on friendly terms at all. So you can maybe understand why Jonah did not want to go there. Uh, So Jonah gets up. He tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. We... Uh, and he goes to this coastal city of Joppa. Okay, this is an, Israel, an Israelite city called Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he gets on a boat and wants to go to Tarshish. And we don't exactly know where Tarshish is. Uh, we know that it's the exact, you know, if Nineveh was inland, uh, this is the exact opposite direction. It's, he's trying to go as far away from Nineveh as he can. Uh, he's trying to flee away, go away from Nineveh and from God as well. And this plan does not work out very well for Jonah. Um, Jonah soon finds himself, as we see at the end of our passage today, Jonah soon finds himself in the belly of a great fish, uh, deep in the, in the sea, learning some very hard lessons about God and about himself. And so why do we need the book of Jonah this morning? Why do we, what, what can Jonah have for us today? Well, really at its heart, Jonah is a book about God's sovereignty. Um, Jonah's a book about God's complete control over, over all things, over things in our lives. We need this book because some of us are afraid. Some of us are afraid of the unknown, afraid of what tomorrow may bring. Uh, we might say, of course, you know, uh, I, I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that God has he's got the whole world in his hands. I know that. I get it. But the truth is that we don't really get it. Uh, we may be able to point to all the Bible verses in the, in the Bible that talk about God's sovereignty. But when the rubber hits the road in our lives, this idea of of God's sovereignty goes right out the window. It has no bearing on on how we actually live, how we actually handle those unexpected things that come to us in life. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention this morning to Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to look at uh, three things. We're going to look at how God's sovereignty is at work in this passage. And we're going to see three points. We're going to see the extent of God's sovereignty, the mystery of of God's sovereignty, and the key to God's sovereignty. So first, let's look at the extent of God's sovereignty. We see God's sovereignty all over the place in the book of Jonah. We see his control over this great fish that he commands. He appoints a great fish to come to swallow Jonah. We see his, his control over salvation uh, in Nineveh and in, and in chapter 1 here, we'll see in a moment. We see his control over plants and animals, uh, over nature, over all sorts of things, big and small. And so this morning, I just want to draw out two things in particular from this passage. A big thing and a small thing that God has control over. First, the big thing. We see God's control over nature, over weather, here in Jonah chapter 1. And we know that uh, as Jonah gets out, as soon as he and these sailors get out on the the sea, a great storm comes about. And we know that it comes from God. We see that in verse 4, if you'll look with me there again. We see this, "...but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea." And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So God sends the storm, and apparently this was a fairly severe storm. Uh, We know that because it says the ship is threatening to break up. And we know that because these seasoned, experienced sailors are terrified. Uh, What do we see? The text here describes them as they're, they're fearing for their lives. They're crying out to their pagan gods. These are pagan soldiers crying out to their gods. To save them, they're throwing they're, uh, they're throwing stuff overboard to lighten the ship so that it won't um, so that it won't sink. I guess I'm not sure exactly why they're doing that, but uh, that's they're 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 desperate. Is the point here? They're desperate. They're in a, a bad situation. 
Now, these men would have seen all types of weather out on the sea. They would have been familiar with all kinds of different weather, but they are terrified. They're frightened. This is a unique and severe storm. And where is Jonah during this storm? Well, he is in the inner part of the ship, fast asleep. Now, how could he be sleeping in the midst of this terrible storm, in the midst of this horrible thing? Well, you know, um, I think maybe the answer comes from an unlikely source, uh, Law & Order SVU, okay? Uh, Shalane and I used to watch this show quite a bit, Law & Order SVU, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things I remember, I, I wasn't a big fan of the show, Shalane, we, I watched it, because Shalane watched it, but um, one of the things I remember from this show that sometimes they would have these sort of old police kind of, police officer intuition kind of things, and so one time, you know, I remember an episode where they'd mention you know, sometimes how can you tell the difference between a guilty suspect and an innocent suspect? And I say, well, if you, arrest, if you arrest a guy and he's guilty and you put him in jail, he's going to fall asleep, okay? If you arrest an innocent guy and put him in jail, he's, gonna, he's not going to sleep. And the, the sort of the intuition, the kind of thinking behind this, as they explained in the show, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what they said in the show. Uh, but the thinking behind it was that a guilty person... They know they're caught, right? They, they, they accept their fate, and they say, well, there's nothing to do about it now. I might as well just get a good night's sleep, okay? Um, but the innocent person is stressed out, is terrified. And, you know, they can't, they, can't re- they can't rest. They can't sleep because they're terrified at, at what's taking place. And, again, I'm not sure if that's true, but I think that kind of fits with what we see happening here. Jonah knows he's guilty. He knows that he's, he has sinned against God. He knows that he's caught. And so he's, he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Um, he, knows, uh, he knows that he is guilty, that God has found him out. Uh, and so the sailors are very bewildered by Jonah's behavior. They, they, you know, the sailor goes down and, and tries to rouse him and says in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. You know, hey, we're, we're dying here, man. What, come on, help us out. Do something useful. Do something productive. Maybe your God can save us. Maybe your God will help us. Uh, and so they kind of interrogate Jonah. They want to figure out, who, who are you? Where are you from? Um, he's perhaps maybe he's one of the he's maybe the only guy on the ship that they don't know. He's he's you know paid for a, a voyage and they're trying to figure out maybe if he's responsible for this somehow. And so we see that uh, and Jonah identifies himself. He says that he serves Yahweh. He serves the the one true God, the the God of Israel, who made and he notice how Jonah identifies him, uh, identifies this God. He says in ver- let's look at verses nine and ten. He says um, he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he identifies his God saying, My God, the God that I serve is the one true God. He's the one who made the sea and the dry land. These words would have been especially heavy for these soldiers, for these sailors, I think, because the sea is where they are afraid of, where they fear they're going to die. The dry land is where they wish that they were. And by by Jonah saying this, the implication is that my God created the sea and the dry land, and He controls the sea and the dry land. And the, seraph, the, the sailors are terrified when He says this. So we see here God's sovereign control over His creation, over nature, over the weather. He commands the winds and the seas, and they obey Him. We see this time and time again in the Bible. God commanding droughts and rain, seas and storms. But it's not only big things that God is in control of. He's also in control of little things as well. And we see this in God's control over the casting of lots in this passage. So when the sailors first wake, up, wake Jonah up, they're trying to decide who's responsible for this calamity, for this tempest that's come upon them. And so they decide uh, to cast lots. It's sort of an ancient way of 
making decisions, an ancient way of determining, you know, uh, if someone were guilty of something, perhaps. Um, it might be sort of akin to drawing straws today, okay? Drawing the short straw would be one sort of like with a lot falling on you. Uh, this was a common practice in the Old Testament. We see it done from time to time. It's not a normal practice for Christians today. We have the Holy Spirit, so we have a much better guide in making decisions. We do not need to cast lots or, or draw straws to make our decisions. But when the sailors cast lot, the lot falls on Jonah, identifying he, that he is the one responsible. So it's as if he's the one that drew the short straw here. Now you might say, well, that's just random. You know, that's just, that's just random. That's just chance. We don't know if that was actually from God. But the Bible actually speaks to this issue specifically elsewhere. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What is this verse saying? Is this verse saying that you, know, you should say a prayer and then go play the slot machine and the Lord will give you a big payday? No, absolutely not. That's not, what this is, that's not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is that God is in control of everything. Even things that seem completely insignificant, even if things that seem completely random, like drawing straws, like casting lots, that even these things are under His control, that every decision of the cast, casting lots, according to Proverbs 16.33, comes from the Lord. So what does this mean for us? Well, it simply means that, that God is in control of everything, that He's in control of, of huge things, nature, weather. He's in control of small and tiny things and everything in between in our lives. The, the huge life-altering events in our lives, the things that seem to be totally random and insignificant, God is in charge of those things. So how might it change your day if you started to think like that? You know, perhaps you've had one of those days where before you leave the house, you spill your coffee on your shirt, okay? You're running late. You have a flat tire on the way to work. You forget to, to turn something in. You forget to make that phone call. And before long, you just, you're like at your wits end, and it's like 9.30 in the morning. And you're like, you know, th- this is just going to be one of those days. Here it comes. And we start to sort of look for bad things, don't we? And we say, oh, what, what's next? Well, you know, what's the next bad thing that's going to happen to me today? Um, and we get this sort of attitude. We get grouchy. We get uh, in this bad mood, sort of expecting bad things. But what if instead of sort of thinking that, oh, this is just bad luck today. This is just bad things happening to me randomly. What if we started to see these things as being not random, but as coming to us from the hand of God? That maybe God is trying to teach me humility and patience today. That maybe God is trying to remind me that, that I am not God. That my plans are not absolute. Uh, maybe God is trying to show me things about himself, about myself, uh, through, these, uh, through these events of the day. And what about those huge life-changing events? What about when those things happen to us? When a loved one dies, when a car is totaled, when you lose your job? When a close friendship falls apart. You know, these are the kinds of events that can scar us, that can leave us hurt and battered and weary. These are the kind of events that can leave us bitter. But what if we remembered God's providence in those moments, God's sovereignty? What if we saw that these, these moments, these big moments were uh, from God as well? That he, God is trying to teach us perhaps a new level of dependence upon Him. That perhaps He's removing something from our lives that was... A hindrance to us, and we didn't even realize it. It's important to remember that there is uh, nothing in our lives that is outside of God's control, from the small things to the big things, everything in between. God is in control. So that's the extent of His sovereignty. God's in control of everything. Uh, so what about the mystery of God's sovereignty? Well, I want, I want to draw your attention to how this passage ends. 
Um, notice that uh, Jonah, when he's after they cast the lots, after they have this conversation, Jonah knows what needs to happen. He says, "Look, you guys are going to throw me out. You got to throw me overboard. You got to throw me. You got to give me to the give me up to the sea to the storm. That's the only way that you're going to survive. That's the only way the the winds and the sea is going to stop." And to these pagan sailors, these pagan sailors, to their credit, you see that they first resist. They're like, no, we, we're not going to throw you out. We're not going to throw you overboard. And they start trying to row harder. They start trying to work harder. We can, we can, maybe we can get back to the land. But they soon realize that this is a vain endeavor. They soon give up on that. And uh, they decide, okay, we're going to throw him overboard. But before they do that, notice uh, what happens in verses 14 through 16. They call out to the Lord. These pagan sailors call out to the Lord. And just before we read it, just note that this is the capital L-O-R-D that you'll see in your Bible, most likely. This is the covenant name of God. This is the name that the Israelites used when they talked to God. This is his name that his people used. And they call it to God and address him in this name. So look at verses 14 through 16. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they call out to God and say, Lord, please don't hold this against us. We're going to throw this guy overboard, but don't hold this blood, don't hold this blood against us. Uh, and they acknowledge his sovereign, his sovereign control over everything. Lord, you have done as it pleased you. This, all of this has come from you. Uh, they call out to him. Uh, and you, again, using this covenant name, the Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, they call out and address to him. And then they, it says at the very end that they, in verse 16, that the men feared him exceedingly. They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And what this text is telling us here is that these men are converted. That these men are now believers. They are believers in the one true God, Yahweh. They're believers in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they are followers of Him, that they offer sacrifice to Him, they make vows to Him. Uh, and so you've got to appreciate the irony of the book of Jonah. Um, that Jonah, God says, Jonah, I want you to go tell these pagan people to repent and, and to believe. And Jonah says, no, I don't want to do that. And so he gets on this boat with all these pagan sailors. And what happens, but over the course of their experience with Jonah, they're converted. These pagan sailors uh, are converted and they believe. They repent and believe. So Jonah is the runaway prophet, an unwilling messenger, and yet God is still using him to bring about his purposes. It's another example of God's sovereignty here. Uh, so there's kind of a happy end to this passage. The storm is quieted. The, the seas stop raging. The sailors are converted. And even Jonah, God has mercy on Jonah and spares his life. That Jonah does not drown in the water, but the Lord sends a great fish uh, to swallow him, to save his life. So what is happening here is that we see God using bad things to bring about good things. God is using Jonah's disobedience. God is using this terrifying storm to bring about the salvation of these sailors. And this is the mystery of God's sovereignty, that He can use bad things to bring about good things in our lives. Now, we, w- we need to be careful here. I, I want to be clear that God is not the author of sin, That God does not force anyone to sin. God does not uh, in any way cause or force sin to take place. But what we see throughout the scriptures is that God can use sin 
to bring about his ultimate purposes. Just as we read, if you remember in the book, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, when uh, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, this is a, they have sinned against him. They have committed a sin here. And at the end of the book, as, jo- as, as we see God's ultimate purpose, that uh, God raised Joseph up in Egypt, Joseph was able to save, uh, this, save his family, save God's people. That Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was able to use that sin, that evil act, for his own good purposes. Uh, so you might say, okay, yeah, that's kind of confusing. I'm not sure I really understand. How, how can God use bad things for his good purposes? Um, well, th- that's okay. That's why it's a mystery, okay? Um, it, it's, it is, you're not alone if you're, if you're a little confused by that. It is difficult to understand, and uh, we, there's this tension in the Bible that we are asked to accept on faith. But we know this from other Bible verses as well. Romans 8.28, a very famous verse, says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. This doesn't mean that bad things never happen to Christians, okay? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that. But what Paul is saying in this verse is that because God is sovereign over all things in your life, because God is a good and loving Father to us, that all the things He brings into your life, the big things and the small things, will ultimately be for your good. That you can accept that by faith. Even if you never see how a thing turns out for good, you can accept, you can accept these promises of the Bible that ultimately it will be for your good. And we see this truth most clearly worked out, most clearly displayed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death. I think it's safe to say that the, the murder of the innocent Son of God was the most wicked thing ever done, the most wicked act, the most heinous sin ever committed, the murder of the innocent son, the innocent and perfect son of God. It was an awful and terrible event. But when we look back on that day, when we remember that day, what do we call it? We call it Good Friday. The worst act ever committed in human history, we look back on it and say, that's Good Friday. Because in God's perfect plan and providence, this great evil was ultimately something good. It was something God was able to turn for good, something wonderful for us. That the Lamb of God, dying for sinners, dying to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God. At that moment, the moment it was happening, it looked terrible. All of Jesus' disciples thought he was a failure, that that this this, uh, great uh, plan of Jesus, this great idea, this great person was done. It was over. But when we look back on it, we see how God was at work, how God was doing something good on that day. So it's, if that's true, then maybe the terrible event that disrupts your life, maybe that uh, terrible event that alters your life forever, maybe one day you'll look back and see how God was at work in that, how God was at work through that, and you'll see how it was for your good. And so that's the mystery of God's sovereignty. Finally, we see the key to God's sovereignty. Now, perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I'm just not sure about this. I'm just, I'm not, the whole idea of God's sovereignty is, is scary. Um, this, I, don't, I don't like the thought that I'm not in control. Um, or, or maybe you're, you're sitting here and you're saying, look, I've experienced some terrible tragedies in my life. And I'm just not ready to think that there's something good could come out of that. I'm just not at the point where I can see something good coming out of this thing I've experienced. And that's okay. Um, it's okay to wrestle with that. It's, okay. it's not an easy thing. This, this idea of God's sovereignty is something that we all wrestle with. We all deal with at one time or another. But we, um, but we need to see this. 
that the key, I think, to really living out the sovereignty of God in our lives, the key is Jesus. Uh, and you might say, well, okay, that's great, but Jesus is nowhere in this passage. Well, that's technically true, um, but this passage, I believe, is designed to point us uh, to Jesus in a very clear and specific way. Because Jonah chapter 1 reads a lot like another story in the Bible. Another story of a prophet who was on a boat with a bunch of experienced sailors. Uh, another story where a great, sea, a great storm came up and these experienced and seasoned sailors were terrified for their lives. And the prophet was below the deck, fast asleep. And of course I'm talking about Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And you'll remember in that story that the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Don't you care that we're going to perish, that we're going to die in this storm? They wake him up, uh, much like the sailors wake up Jonah. Uh, the similarities in there, though, because where Jonah says, You've got to throw me in the sea, uh, Jesus has a different approach. Jesus simply speaks to the winds and the sea, and they obey him, and they cease. They stop their raging. Because you see, Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah, okay? And Jesus says that in our unison reading of Scripture this morning. Jesus said that. He says, something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, and so, in every way, Jesus is better. Because when God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to this wicked and rebellious people in Nineveh. I want you to go and preach to them. Jonah says, no way. I, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And he literally runs in the opposite direction. But when God says to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to go to this wicked and rebellious people, and I want you to preach to them. But listen, your preaching is not going to be enough. I want you to go to them. I want you to give everything you have. I want you to give your life. I want you to lay down your life for these people. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not run away. That Jesus said yes, that he came and he did it for you and for me. And how is this the key to God's sovereignty? How is this sort of to help us uh, accept God's sovereignty in our lives? Well, simply this. Because the one who sits on the throne, the one who rules over all things, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who has control over the big things and the small things in your life, is the same one who came and gave himself up for you. The one who loves you more than you love yourself. So we don't have to worry about what's coming next because the one who is in control loves you far more than you will ever understand. So you can trust God with your life. You can trust Him with every part of it. Uh, with your finances, with your children, with um, your health, with all that you have. You can trust, entrust those things to God because Jesus is faithful, because the gospel is true, because God is for you and not against you. If you are following a follower of Jesus, if you are His child, because He controls all things, but He loves you like a son. He loves you like a daughter. But when we, so when we really believe that, we can start to see how He turns all things for good. How We can start to see God's sovereignty not as something frightening in our lives, but as a sweet comfort. Um, there's a singer, Christian singer-songwriter that I've been following for about 10 years or so, I think. Her name's Sandra McCracken. Some of you may be familiar with Sandra. Uh, she's uh, based out of Nashville, has made, recorded a number of really great albums. She does, some of her albums are just sort of like songs that she's written. Some of her albums are kind of like designed to be hymns, and some of them are like reworkings of old hymns and that sort of thing. Last year, um, Sandra McCracken's, she was married to a, a guy who was also a, a Christian singer-songwriter. They, they record some albums together. But last year, her husband sort of very publicly left her. 
Um, and it was kind of a shocking thing uh, for anyone who's been kind of following their careers. And so what does she do after her husband of, of 10, 13 years or so, after he left her? Well, she went to the studio and she recorded a group of, uh, a group of songs these songs that were based on, some of them were based on old hymn texts, some of them were like reworkings of old hymns, some of them were like originals. But these are, she recorded an album of songs based on the Psalms, based on a number of Psalms. And she called her album Psalms, okay? Uh, and it's very good. I highly recommend you check it out, look it up online or something. But there's a song in, in that album, there's a song in that album there about God's sovereignty. And it's, it's adapted from an old hymn that you may have heard before called What Air My God Ordains Is Right. You kind of adapted that um, into uh, keeping some of the same lyrics and stuff. And she, but she titled her version, Sweet Comfort. And I just want to end today by reading you a few lines, a few verses from this, uh, from this great song. Uh, it goes like this. She says, um, Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abides. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guides. Whatever my God ordains is right. He makes my feet to stand. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, He holds me in His hand. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me, I shall not fall. Whatever my God ordains as right, to Him I leave it all. And the chorus of the song goes like this. It says, Sweet comfort, sweet comfort, yet shall fill my heart. Sweet comfort, sweet comfort, sorrow, shall depart. So as we leave here this morning, uh, as we leave God's house this morning, I, it's my prayer that the sovereignty of God would be something real in our lives, that it would not be a burden, uh, that it would not be just a confounding mystery, but that it would be a sweet comfort for you, that it would be a balm for your weary soul. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for um, your sovereignty. We thank you that um, you, you have done so much for us, that you have sent your Son, that you sent uh, your Son Jesus to die for us, to, uh, to save us, and that Jesus did not run away, but that he came uh, because he loved us. Lord, we pray that we would um, keep that in mind as we think through, as we wrestle with uh, entrusting our lives to you, that we would remember, those, we'd remember the truths of the gospel, that we would uh, find sweet comfort in your sovereignty. Uh, that we would uh, find sweet comfort to, to battle our fears, to battle our heartache, to battle our bitterness. Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.